0: This morning, as we continue our study of the Sermon on the Mount, we have come to one of the most unusual statements ever uttered by Jesus. We read in Luke chapter 6, the second part of verse 21, these words, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Now, Matthew, in his account of the Sermon on the Mount, records Jesus saying similar words, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, as you hear these words, it may strike you that something just doesn't sound right about them. And the reason it doesn't sound right is because this third beatitude is a paradox. Two truths that appear to be at odds with each other, but they aren't at odds with each other. Someone wants to find the paradox as truth standing on its head, calling for attention. And that's really what we see here in this paradoxical... Beatitude, it's a statement that is designed to grab your attention. It's designed to call you to, to stop and consider it. It's a statement that just is startling somewhat because it startles us because it leaves us wondering how those who weep and mourn, how they can possibly be called blessed by God. You see, the concepts of being blessed and weeping, they seem to be complete opposites they seem to have no connection to one another it would sound more compatible with human experience to rewrite this beatitude with the words blessed are those who have no tears at all that's not what jesus said he said blessed are those who weep and mourn now based on what we have discovered in our previous studies we know that the word blessed speaks of God's approval it speaks of his smile it speaks of his favor upon someone so what Jesus is saying is that God has blessed with his approving smile those who mourn and grieve now that could not be further from the philosophy of our world because the philosophy the viewpoint of unbelievers is to do everything they can to forget their trouble, so that they can be as happy as they possibly can and not weep and not mourn. So much so that when someone comes along whose life is characterized by mourning and weeping instead of partying, non-Christians tend to look at that person as just someone peculiar, odd, different. But folks, that's exactly the point. That's exactly the point that Jesus was making with this beatitude and really the point that he was making in the entire sermon on the mount. As you'll recall, the primary message of our Lord's Sermon is to convey the basic truth that believers, citizens of His Kingdom, are different from unbelievers. And citizens of His Kingdom are different in the way they behave because they are different in their innermost character. As a result of the new birth, regeneration, they have been transformed in their hearts in their innermost beings and therefore they are distinct in their essential makeup and their nature and so what jesus is doing in the beatitudes these statements about those who are blessed is he's expressing how christians his followers are different from non-christians and in this third beatitude he's specifically telling us that those who believe in him those who are his true followers his disciples those who have been truly converted they're weepers they're mourners we're grievers in contrast to unbelievers who as i said do everything in their power to try to keep from mourning our lives are characterized by mourning in fact if you'll notice in verse 25 just a few verses later in luke's gospel jesus will say these words in order to heighten the distinction between believers and unbelievers he said, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. In other words, those outside of Christ's kingdom are described as those who in this present world they're laughing, but who in the future will be mourning and weeping. But Jesus describes those in his kingdom as those who, who weep now, but who will in the future be laughing. So, the challenge then facing us this morning is to discover what Jesus meant by these two basic concepts that he's referred to in this particular beatitude. What did he mean by, number one, the phrase, blessed are you who weep now? And what did he mean by the second phrase, for you shall laugh? So, let's begin to unfold this verse and see what this is all about. First of all, we want to discover what Jesus meant by the first phrase, blessed are those who weep now. Now, I find that it can be very helpful in dealing with challenging biblical concepts to first eliminate wrong interpretations. Just get them out of the way. So let's start by stating what Jesus did not mean by this phrase, blessed are you who weep now. First of all, he did not mean that his followers should never laugh or enjoy themselves. Jesus didn't say blessed are the gloomy and cheerless. He didn't say blessed are those who are miserable and never laugh. Tasteful humor and laughter are presented in Scripture as very positive things. For example, Solomon said in Proverbs 17:22, "A joyful heart is good medicine." Proverbs 15:13 reads this way: "A joyful heart makes a cheerful face." Or, as my professor and dear friend at Moody Irvin Robertson used to say of this verse, "If you have the joy of the Lord in your heart, please notify your face." commenting on the importance of laughter and how it should be expressed on our face, missionary statesman and author Oswald Sanders, he wrote these words, "'Should we not see that lines of laughter about the eyes are just as much marks of faith as our lines of care and seriousness? Is laughter pagan? We have already allowed too much that is good to be lost to the church.'" A church is in a bad way when it banishes laughter from the sanctuary and leaves it to the cabaret, the nightclub, and the Toastmasters. Listen, the New Testament even has an entire letter devoted to the concepts of joy and rejoicing. It's Paul's letter to the Philippians, which he wrote while he was in prison. And yet he said words like this in Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always, again, I will say, rejoice. Rejoice. So we know from these scriptural references that Jesus certainly wasn't stating that in this third beatitude that citizens of his kingdom are characterized by a joyless, grim Christianity devoid of any cheerfulness. He wasn't saying that at all. Sadly though, that's how some Christians have viewed our Lord's words because that's how they view the Christian life. Charles Spurgeon recognized this. And he said these words. He said that some preachers he had known appeared to have their neckties twisted around their souls. I don't understand exactly what that means, but it can't be good. (laughs) Apparently, the well-known writer Robert Louis Stevenson must have known preachers like that too because one statement in Stevenson's diary reads this way. I've been to church today and I'm not depressed. Meaning that most of the time he was depressed. And he was depressed, no doubt, because of some of the preachers he heard. So based on what the rest of Scripture teaches, we know that when Jesus said, Blessed are you who weep, he wasn't saying that his followers should never laugh or enjoy themselves. Secondly, Jesus did not mean blessed are those who weep and cry over the miseries and the heartaches of life. You see, in spite of our world's distaste for mourning and weeping, There are certain legitimate sorrows that are common to mankind and they lead to sorrow and grief. Job said that all of us are born into trouble and experience has revealed that some of these troubles lead to mourning and crying and weeping. Listen, everyone, regardless of where they are spiritually saved or unsaved, has experienced the grief that comes with the death of a loved one, everyone. In addition, we've all mourned over such things as illness, physical pain financial loss, extreme disappointment, loneliness, discouragement, loss of a job, things like that. These are all natural, and they are legitimate causes of sadness and sorrow. However, this wasn't the kind of mourning that Jesus was referring to. So how do we know this? How do we know that Jesus isn't referring to the weeping and the crying that comes as a result of the tragedies of life? Well, we know this because the type of, of mourning that Jesus has in mind is a mourning that is reserved only for his followers. Folks, that's the whole point of the Beatitudes. The point is to define for us the unique character makeup of citizens of his kingdom in contrast to unbelievers outside of his kingdom. So what Jesus is referring to is a type of mourning A type of of weeping that's not known by unbelievers, but rather a mourning and a weeping that is distinctly Christian. A grieving over something that is experienced only by those who know Him, those who follow Him. So what kind of mourning, what kind of weeping might this be? Well, note this. The mourning that Jesus is referring to is a mourning of a spiritual nature. You see, just as the first beatitude had nothing to do with financial poverty, but it was about spiritual poverty. And just as the second beatitude had nothing to do with physically hungering and thirsting in that sense, but it was about a spiritual hunger and a thirst for righteousness. So this third beatitude has nothing to do with weeping over the natural events and tragedies of life. That is to say, what Jesus means when He says, Blessed are you who weep now, is blessed are you who weep and mourn now over sin. He's talking about sin. See, by this brief statement, our Lord is telling us that one of the defining marks of a true child of God and a citizen of His kingdom is that we are brokenhearted over sin. First, our own sin, and then eventually the sins of others. And that's why this beatitude naturally follows being poor in spirit and hungering and thirsting after righteousness. See, the only people who are capable of mourning over their sin are those who have first seen their spiritual bankruptcy and their lack of righteousness. This is the natural flow of a Christian's life. Here's how this works having recognized our poverty of spirit so that we have seen how spiritually bankrupt we are, how spiritually destitute we are, having absolutely no righteousness to offer to God, we enter Christ's kingdom. And once we do that, our brand new divine nature given to us at the moment of regeneration, it causes us to hunger, and to thirst after righteousness, as we now, for the first time in our lives, we desire to obey God. But then, having tasted true righteous living, for the first time, we become acutely aware of how unrighteous we are, of how ungodly we are. In other words, we now see our sin like we've never seen it before, and we mourn over our sin. Once we discover how truly sinful we are, we grieve over it. Because now we see, at least to some degree, how utterly wicked we really are before a perfectly holy God. And that in turn causes us to deeply grieve over how rebellious we've been towards Him our entire lives. Folks, this is the experience of every true Christian. Because every believer having had a glimpse of God's holiness and His righteousness, sees how utterly depraved and wicked they really are, and they mourn over it. This was the experience of the great Old Testament prophet Isaiah. After he caught a glimpse of God's holiness, we read these words in Isaiah chapter 6, 1-5. through 5. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of His robe filling the temple seraphim those are angels stood above him each having six wings with two he covered his face with two he covered his feet and with two he flew why did they cover themselves because even pure angels in the presence of god recognize how holy he is one called out to another and said holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I'm ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. It was only after Isaiah saw this vision of God's holiness that he saw how unholy he was. This was a man of God. This is a man who had known the Lord for years and years, and yet he now sees how unholy he is because his speech compared to God's holiness is just so filthy. This was the experience too of Job, who although Job was considered the best man of his time after his eyes were opened to see the truth about God, he declared these words in Job 42, verses 5 and 6. I have heard of you by the hearing of of the ear but now my eye sees you therefore i retract and i repent in dust and ashes you see when shown the holiness of god we mourn we mourn over our sins here's how dr martin lloyd jones explained it he said to mourn is something that follows of necessity being poor in spirit it's quite inevitable As I confront God and His holiness and contemplate the life that I am meant to live, I see myself, my utter helplessness and hopelessness. I discover my quality of spirit and immediately that makes me mourn. I must mourn about the fact that I am like that. A man who truly faces himself and examines himself and his life is a man who must of necessity mourn for his sins also, for the things he does. You see, beloved, every true believer in Christ Upon entering God's kingdom and therefore for the first time in their life experiencing a taste of righteous living, we react with tears. Sometimes they're the outward wet tears, but always they are the internal tears of sorrow for our many sins against God. Having come to Christ with contrite hearts, broken hearts, we now see ourselves for what we really are. Proud, irritable, bad-tempered, self-consumed jealous lustful mean-spirited souls and i could go on and on and our reaction to all of this is that we're bothered by what we are and this causes us deep grief and anguish because we know that our sins have grieved and have offended and insulted the holy and loving heart of god we know like never before that it was our sins that put our precious and innocent savior on the cross not somebody else's but our sins and how deep and intense is this grief listen we want to be careful that we don't tone this down that we don't soften the blow of what christ is saying by minimizing by reducing this grieving to just sort of a light touch of sadness because what jesus is talking about is a deep heartfelt grief and a deep inner agony and i say that because the particular greek word that's used in matthew's version of the sermon on the mount the word that's translated as mourning it is a very strong word of all the greek words used in the new testament for sorrow and there are 9 of them this one is used to describe the deepest and most heartfelt grief in fact this is the greek word that is most often used to describe the heartfelt grief over the death of a loved one So the type of mourning over our sin that Jesus is referring to is as deep and it's as intense as it gets. Now let's think about this a little further. Because there are some who, while recognizing that they are sinners, and I'm talking about those who profess to know Christ, they recognize that they're sinners, their acknowledgement of their sin is just very general, very vague, nothing specific. And the problem with that is that it is impossible to mourn over ambiguous sins. You see, when Jesus said that life in His kingdom involves mourning over sin, He meant specific, definite sins that should bother us. Sins that we can identify. He wasn't talking about some vague, yes, I'm a sinner, but I don't know where I sin. No. We mourn over our sins. We mourn over definite sins. Sins that we can identify. Because we do something that unbelievers don't do and they won't do what do we do we face the truth about ourselves without any excuses without any justifications for these specific sins of behavior and attitudes we don't blame our sins on other people we're not victims we're not helpless we take responsibility for our actions and attitudes as that cartoon character years ago said we have met the enemy and them is us it's not somebody else no one caused me to react this way it's me I'm not a helpless victim I take responsibility see one of the ways you can know if you're really a Christian is that true Christians do not rationalize away their sins they acknowledge them and they grieve over them being able to specifically identify their sins Listen to what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3 verses 10 through 18, because what Paul describes here is a picture of the way every one of us would behave if left to ourselves by identifying the type of sins that we are guilty of. Now, he's not saying that all of us always act this way, but this is in our hearts. And if left to ourselves, this is how we would behave. He said, there is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands, there's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become useless. There's none who does good, there's not even one. Their throat is an open grave, with their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps or snakes is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes." Listen, seeing ourselves in these words, we see that they describe us. And we grieve over our soul's disposition. Folks, this is all of us. Because our natural inclination, if God doesn't intervene in our lives, is to go our own way and to not care at all about God and His ways. We grieve over the words that we speak because our throats are indeed like foul Open graves spewing out poisonous words of deceit, lying, bitterness, cursings. We grieve over our deeds because our deeds, if left to ourselves, are just deeds of hatred and malice and disdain, poor attitudes, not peace. The question is do you mourn and lament over these types of sins and others in your heart and life? Do you mourn and do you confess them to God? Do you repent over them or do you just figure, you know what, it's really not that important because everybody behaves like this. In fact, by comparison, I'm actually pretty good. See, a true citizen of the kingdom doesn't think like that. We grieve deeply over our sins because we know that our sins offend a holy God. And note this, we keep on grieving over our sin throughout our entire lives. We, we never stop grieving regardless of how long we've been a Christian or how mature we are in Christ. In fact, one of the unusual things about the Christian life is that the more mature we are in Christ, the more our sin bothers us. Because our love for the Lord is now so much deeper than when we were initially converted. That sinning against Him is now so much more grievous to us This was certainly the Apostle Paul's experience. Here's what Paul wrote to the Romans concerning his own experience. Romans chapter 7, starting verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm of flesh sold into bondage to sin. For what I'm doing, I don't understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I don't want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I don't do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me. The one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? So here's the great Apostle Paul, not as a new believer, not as an unconverted man, as a Christian who's been saved for many years, who's a leader, who's an apostle, And here's Paul mourning over his sin, agonizingly calling himself a wretched man and crying out for God's deliverance. And listen, I want you to know this was not the unique experience reserved only for Paul or apostles. The history of God's people verifies that all true believers, even the most godly, they mourn and sorrow over their personal sin. For example, David Brainerd was an 18th century missionary to the american indians he was a man noted for his godliness his piety his deep spiritual sensitivity here's what david brainerd recorded in his journal on october 18th 1740 in my morning devotions he said my soul was exceedingly melted and bitterly mourned over my exceeding sinfulness and vileness on another occasion he wrote in his journal at this time god gave me such an affecting sense of my own vileness and the exceeding sinfulness of my heart that there seemed to be nothing but sin and corruption within me and it was the great english preacher spurgeon who said this about himself in one of his sermons in the year 1889 spurgeon said brethren When I've carefully considered and inwardly perceived the holiness of God's law, I felt as though the sharp edge of a saber had been drawn across my heart, and I have shivered and trembled. What poor creatures we are. The best of men are men at best. And apart from the work of the Holy Spirit and the power of divine grace, hell itself does not contain greater monsters than you and I might become. See, the way Paul felt, the way David Brainerd felt, the way Spurgeon felt as they mourned over their sin, that's the way all true Christians feel about their sin. We despise the wickedness that we see in our hearts, that we see in our lives, and we long to be free from them. I hope that that this is an encouragement to you, a comfort to you, especially if you are a new Christian, because new Christians sometimes are very shocked to see how much sin is still in their lives. And they tend to get concerned and discouraged over this, wondering at times, am I really saved? How can I be saved? There's so much sin in my life. But listen, I want you to know, and this is the encouragement, I want you to know this is normal. It just means that you see your sin clearer than ever, and you hate it, and you grieve over it. If you were comfortable with your sin, that would be a problem. The fact that you're aware of it, that's really not a problem. But the fact that if you were comfortable with your sin, that's when something is terribly wrong. Either you have never become a Christian or you are a backslidden believer, too absorbed with yourself to even notice that you are grieving the Holy Spirit by your behavior. So don't be discouraged by this inward struggle. It's normal. It's what every citizen of the kingdom goes through. It is normal for believers to be continuously bothered by their sin, even as they are growing in the Lord. But here's something important to understand. When Jesus said, blessed are you who weep now, he wasn't limiting our weeping to our own sin. That's only part of it. See, when you've been regenerated, your love for God leaves you mourning over the sins of others because you see how much they are dishonoring God. In other words, not only is the faithful child of God broken over his own sinfulness, but it grieves him to see the foolishness and the wickedness of others who sin against the God that he now deeply loves. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 119, verse 136, he said, My eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep your law. The Apostle Paul rebuked the church at Corinth because they failed to mourn over the sin of an immoral man who they should have disciplined. That was what Paul wrote to them about 1 Corinthians 5.2. And Paul himself was so grieved over the many sins of the Corinthians that he actually states in 2 Corinthians 2.4 that he wrote his first letter to them with many tears. There are some who think that if we have the original manuscript which we don't Of what we know as 1 Corinthians, we would see that it was stained with tears, tears from Paul. Likewise, the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah was noted. He was called the weeping prophet because of all the lamenting he did for the rebelliousness of the nation Israel. And mourning for others certainly was true of our Lord, who was called a man of sorrows and one who was acquainted with grief, not for his own sin, for he had none, but the sins of others. Remember how Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem because of their rejection of Him? And the coming devastation He knew they would experience because of their rejection of Him? Here's what we read in Luke 19 starting at verse 41. When He approached Jerusalem, He saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day even you the things which make for peace, they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you When your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they'll level you to the ground and your children within you and they'll not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. In other words, you didn't recognize Jerusalem the time when the Messiah, your Messiah was here and you'll suffer for it. And he wept over that. On another occasion, Christ's heart was so broken over the damaging effects of sin upon people that at the grave of his dear friend Lazarus, Lazarus, just before he brought him back to life, we read the briefest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. John chapter 11, verse 35, Jesus wept. Now, why was he weeping? Well, he certainly wasn't weeping for Lazarus. He was about to raise him from the dead momentarily. No point in weeping for him. If you look at the context, you'll see that Jesus looked around just before He wept and He saw others crying. The sisters of Lazarus, other mourners, no doubt, neighbors, relatives, they're, they're all weeping. And then Jesus wept. Why? He wept because as He looked around and saw the effects of sin and death upon others, His heart was broken. Broken over the very nature of sin and the way it impacts people causing so much grief and terrible heartache that the Lord just emotionally wept. He was moved by the devastating effects of sin. And folks, this should be our response to sin around us. When you read or you hear about the atrocities reported by the news media, it should evoke not only feelings of disgust, but also of mourning and grief. And when you see the sins of people you know, relatives and friends and fellow workers and fellow students, it should grieve your heart. Not in a self-righteous way as if you're above all of that and you could never do what they're doing. No, in a way that grieves over God being dishonored because we're just as capable as anybody else of doing what others have done. Here's a one Bible teacher explained how the true Christian should react to the sins of others as he sees these sins all around him. He said he must mourn because of the very nature of sin itself because it has ever entered into the world and has led to these terrible results. Indeed, he mourns because he has some understanding of what sin means to God, of God's utter abhorrence and hatred of it, this terrible thing that would stab, as it were, into the heart of God if it could, this rebelliousness and arrogance of man, the results of listening to Satan. It grieves him and he mourns because of it. So be careful, be careful about growing calloused, not only to your own sins, but also to the sins of others, the corruption around us. There's just so much wickedness and corruption in the world, and it's only going to get worse that it is easy to become uncaring and indifferent, but sin in any form committed by anyone should indeed grieve us. And if it doesn't, it means simply that you need to have a fresh glimpse of the holiness of God, because God never changes. Now with all this emphasis in Scripture on mourning over sin, are we then to conclude that citizens of the kingdom are depressed people, that we walk about continuously downcast and sullen about our many sins? Not at all. Because Jesus concluded this beatitude with a precious promise that keeps us from being morose and miserable over our sins. He said, and here's the second phrase that we need to understand, for you shall laugh. Jesus said that those who weep and mourn over their sin now shall laugh. Matthew's version of this same beatitude records Jesus saying, shall be comforted. So when we put this together, we find Jesus saying, not only will those who weep over their sin now be comforted, but they'll actually be laughing as well. So what did our Lord mean by this? Well, first of all, the laughing and the comfort that Jesus was referring to isn't something that we have to wait for to experience when we die, when we get to heaven. Nor is this a reference to the future millennial kingdom when conditions will be so different. No, the laughter and the comfort that Jesus was talking about was something that comes right after weeping and mourning over sin. In other words, just as those who are spiritually poor are part of Christ's kingdom right now, and those who hunger and thirst after righteousness are satisfied right now, so those who weep over sin are comforted and made to laugh right now. Listen closely. The laughter that Jesus is referring to is not a a glib laughter of mirth. It is a laughter of joy. And the comfort he's referring to is the comfort that comes when our guilt-ridden souls are relieved of anxiety, specifically the comfort that comes from being forgiven of all of our sins. That's what Psalm 32 is about. I read it earlier, but here's how David opened this psalm. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. See, here is how this works. I said this before. I'm going to take you through it again. When we come under deep conviction of our sin, it's because the Lord has opened our hearts to see how holy and how just He is. He is. And He reveals to us the way of salvation it's through faith in Christ because we know we're not holy. We're not righteous. He is. Christ is the only way. Christ has died for sinners and so we place our faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation and upon doing that we enter His kingdom and due to the new birth we are immediately aware of a whole new set of righteous desires and longings. But now that we've seen His holy perfection and our sin and have experienced something of true righteous desires, we see how far short we have fallen from His glory. And so we're devastated as we face the truth about ourselves for the very first time. And so we weep and we mourn and we're disgusted with our sinfulness. But as we are mourning over our sins, as we're weeping, we see another side of God knowing that we've come to christ for salvation we see that not only is god holy and just but he's also merciful and gracious and loving and having turned to him for salvation from our many sins we experience the incredible comfort of knowing his complete and i mean complete forgiveness based on christ's atoning work we have been forgiven of past, present, and future sins. 1 John 2.12, and I could have read many verses. This is just one verse that tells us the same thing that we read throughout the New Testament. I'm writing to you, little children, John said, because your sins have been forgiven you for His name's sake. Praise God. This is why those who mourn over their sins, this is why they're comforted. This is why they they laugh. This is a laughter of joy. Because they know that God has completely forgiven all of their sins. He's not simply covered them. He's taken them away. As one Bible teacher put it, this is the joy, relief, and freedom of the forgiven. See, only those who weep and mourn over their sin will experience the comfort and joy of having their sins forgiven in Christ. And that's because God in His mercy became a man in the person of Jesus Christ and he satisfied his own his own holy demands for justice by being punished in the place of sinners he, Christ he bore the wrath of God the Father that we deserve and upon trusting him as our savior you're forgiven of all of your sin and you experience the joy the comfort that comes with knowing that you're forgiven this is why isaiah 61 refers to the messiah as one who will bind up the brokenhearted and comfort all who mourn this is exactly what christ does in the lives of those who come to him burdened with sin struggling with sin grieving over their sin jesus said at the end of matthew chapter 11 these wonderful words come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and i'll give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and humble in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. But listen, this comfort isn't limited to our initial salvation. It continues as we make progress in the Christian life because our sin continuously drives us back to the Lord, mourning over them, but also repenting over them as we forsake them, as we confess them. And the moment we turn to Christ in repentance he cleanses us and that peace and that joy return and we laugh again this is the blessed comfort the blessed joy that the true Christian has today and in the future when we are in Christ's presence in heaven this blessing will be ours in its fullness because there won't be any more personal sins to grieve over and that's when the Bible says that this will take place in Revelation 21, verse 4, that He'll wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will be no longer any death. There'll be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. But until that time arrives, folks, we do continue to weep and mourn over our sins. And we continue to be comforted to the point of laughing with joy by the Lord's ongoing gracious forgiveness. And it's this balance between grieving and comfort that keeps us from becoming gloomy, depressed people. See, citizens of the kingdom, in spite of their continual internal grief, we are not miserable people. Because at the same time that we are weeping over our sins, we're also comforted because of God's grace and mercy. But without God's forgiveness, there is no comfort, there is no joy. If you die before turning to Christ for salvation, you will die in your sins, which means you will only experience torment, the torment of hell forever, with no hope ever of getting out and having any comfort. That's because God is holy, and you're not. He must punish sin. His holiness demands that He punish sin. He can't let sin go unpunished. But the good news is He has punished sin when He punished His Son for the sin of sinners like you and me. That's what the cross is all about. He who knew no sin experienced the wrath of God upon Him. He became sin for us. So I urge you if you've never trusted Christ to see yourself as God sees you sinful and rebellious. Turn to Him to forgive you if you do want to talk to one of our pastors about this then just see me as we close the service but if you already are a citizen of his kingdom you've come to faith in christ you know him you need to make sure that there's nothing hindering you from grieving over your sin so how do we remove any obstacles to grieving two things are necessary number one you have to have a clear view of god's character and you gain this by studying the bible not simply the stories of the Bible, although that's important, but you go beyond the stories with a view towards understanding God's character, His nature, His attributes, against the backdrop of His character, specifically His holiness, you'll see your sin. Secondly, you have to have a clear view of yourself. Take time during the day, perhaps perhaps at the end of the day, to look back and reflect upon your activities, your daily activities, how have you spoken to others today? Were you nasty? Insensitive? Maybe you were gracious. I hope you were. What's been your attitudes throughout the day? Complaining? Bitter? Jealous? Annoyed? Have you harbored any ill thoughts towards others? Perhaps towards God, because He didn't get your way. Have you done something you shouldn't have done? Have you not done something that you know you should have done? I mean, all these things you need to think about. By taking the time to run over these things in your mind, you'll become more aware of your sins and you will mourn. Listen, never become too busy with the activities of life to take the time to examine yourself for any sin that needs to be addressed. And you address sin by mourning over it, confessing it, and being comforted by God's forgiveness. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, that these words uttered by Jesus over 2,000 years ago are living and they impact us and they cut us and they deal with us and they convict us and they comfort us at the same time. So, Lord, I pray that You'll use Your Word to deeply impact the lives of those who are here today at Lakeside. We thank You, Lord Jesus, that You have forgiven Your people and we do pray that you'll help us to not always beat ourselves up over our sins but to accept your forgiveness at the same time lord to not pass over them but to mourn over them to grieve our sin to recognize that we have offended you and lord that will never if that's done we'll never have a self righteous attitude We thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you that though we are undeserving, you have saved us. And I pray for any here who have not been saved. They may have even professed to know you. They may have prayed the sinner's prayer. They may have been baptized and confessed you before men, but their hearts have never been changed. There's no evidence of true salvation. So I pray that you'll convict them and before it's too late, draw them to yourself. All this we pray in Christ's name, amen.